and welcome to the Creative Soul Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Van Doren, and in this podcast, I talk with some of the most creative and inspiring people that I know. From hearing about their process to what holds them back from creating, routines and rituals, to the intersection between creativity and spirituality, you'll hear from writers, actors, singers, dancers, musicians, painters, multi-passionate creatives, and anyone else who considers themselves a creative soul. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Creative Soul Podcast. I am so excited to have on the podcast this week my guest, Madeline Sayet. Madeline Sayet is a citizen of the Mohegan tribe and is the executive director of the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. For her work as a theater maker, she has been honored as a Forbes 30 Under 30, TED Fellow, and is a recipient of the White House Champion of Change Award from President Obama. Madeline is someone who I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite some time now, so I'm super excited we got to have this conversation, and I'm just super inspired by her work as a director, as a writer, as an actor. In this episode, we talk about how growing up in the Mohegan tribe and growing up with traditional Mohegan stories and also Shakespeare has shaped her to become the theater maker that she is today. We talk about theater as being sacred or not sacred. Um, You get to hear kind of her take on that. We talk a lot about her process of writing her solo show, which she's performed at the Shakespeare's Globe and what that process was like and figuring out the question you know, as an indigenous person in a globalized world, where does someone like her belong? And so she talks about her process and answering that question for herself. We also talk about story medicine, which is an idea that I'm very passionate about, thinking about stories as a responsibility that we have in what stories we choose to tell and which stories we choose to pass down and how stories can shape our culture and do both healing and harm. And so we talk about all of that. And so if you are interested in theater, if you are a director, writer, actor, any of those things, and you can relate to the multidisciplinary life, then you'll really like this episode. So without further ado, we'll jump into this episode with Madeline. So the first question I ask everyone is, what is currently fueling your creative soul? Oh, goodness. I think what's currently fueling my creative soul is So during the pandemic, there are certain things that have become, you know, much more difficult in theater. And then there are other things that strangely have become much more accessible. And for Native theater, there's this increase in accessibility has actually made a really big impact in terms of ways communities are able to connect. And Mm -hmm. so the thing that's been fueling my creative soul right now is a lot of the workshops that I run for the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program normally you know, are very like location-based. So, you know, if you're at Yale, you can come. But what's been happening during the pandemic is, you know, we can invite Native folks from all over, which means not only elders, but also, you know, high school students or even occasionally elementary school students who otherwise would never be in this space where they're, you know, learning from and in conversation with a collective of professional Native theater artists. And seeing the ways in which they respond to even knowing that space exists has been really, really exciting for me lately. And it's also been interesting because in general, like any reading that we host online is just accessible to so many more native people than, you know, if it were in New York or if it was in one of these like specific city hubs. And so so thinking about how accessibility is, is maintained as we sort of move forward, hopefully past the pandemic is really, really fueling me right now. 
Wow. Yeah. I think that's some, one of the beautiful silver linings of this time that now, you know, where you needed to be location specific before now it's really opened up to people all over the world. And so that's really exciting to bring theater to native communities that might not have had that introduction otherwise. Well, they definitely had theater otherwise, but, but they might not have had introduction to theater with other native artists, right? Mm -hmm. So much of our introduction to theater is at our schools or Shakespeare or like a very specific entry point to theater where you might not have thought like, oh, I could do this in relationship with my culture as opposed to erasing it. Mm, I love that. Well, you talk about kind of your story, where you grew up, how you grew up, how you came into theater, how you came into directing and what that has really meant for you. Sure. So I was raised in, in Connecticut, in traditional lands. I'm a citizen of Mohegan tribe. And my mom is the medicine woman of the Mohegan tribe. And my great aunt Gladys Tanaquidgen was medicine woman before her. And so I was raised on a combination of traditional Mohegan stories and Shakespeare. Tanaquidgen Indian Museum, which my great aunt Gladys um, and her brother and father founded in the 1930s, is the oldest Indian owned and operated museum in the country. And so I was, you know, raised both telling our stories and our history, as well as when I was six or seven, my mom started taking me to see outdoor Shakespeare performances locally. Mm -hmm. And, and so because I started seeing them so young, they just became a part of my sort of fairy tale story world. And I started looking at the intersections between, you know, the different kinds of story, instead of thinking about how they're different, I sort of kind of started like merging them all together in my mind, you know, as a, as a sort of singular story world. And so because of that, a lot of the way that I looked at story as I, as I grew up was about how do we build bridges um, between these sort of ways of thinking in the work. And I also, for this reason, think a lot about story medicine. So within traditional sort of healing practices, uh, story has, has sort of always been used as medicine. Ideas are also very intersectional, right? So like if you're like mental health isn't separate from physical health. Like all of these things are intersecting. And so story is also a part of that. And thinking about story as medicine as something that is either doing healing or harm is very central to my work because, because I don't think it's, it's often considered enough. And I really do believe that that is the effect that it has. And so if you're going to tell a story, what are you doing with that story is I think a really, really important consideration. And not just for this moment, for all, but also for, for how that affects things you know, down the road in terms of the offspring of that creation. But yeah, so so I, I guess it's a little bit more into my trajectory. I, I went to, I grew up doing outdoor Shakespeare and then I went to Tisch for acting. And the summer after I graduated, I, I finally had the opportunity to work on my first native play, which was a reading of a play by William S. Yellowrope Jr. And I remember just being like amazed that there were all these things in the play that connected with me so much more deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that really shifted my relationship to the theater and Bill sort of connected me to the native theater community in New York. And the first show that I ever directed was my master's thesis, which was a production of The Tempest that looked at the question of what would happen if Caliban could get his language back. And it was because at that moment I was getting really frustrated with the representations of Caliban, who was at that point the only character in the canon that I really like could see myself in. And so mm-hmm. this was my representation of the canon and people were treating him like he was a monster and like, you know, his language was just gobbledygook before Prosper arrived. What did it mean if we could show Caliban's humanity through his reclamation of language as he journeys toward his freedom. And so that was sort of my first directing um, experience. And it was also for me a really exciting turning point because it showed me the ways in which you could use directing to shift the way people think about the world or think about who is human. And so from there, I was running two small theater companies. I was running both 
a small theater company that I founded as when I was in college, like a lot of people do. And I was running the theater program at Amarinda American Indian Artists, Inc. And the great thing about Amarinda was that their mission is to promote indigenous representation in the arts. And what that did was it was a very liberating way to start one's career because I wasn't beginning directing ever from a point of white male dominated spaces. I was beginning directing from a point of like, what is it that you want to say? Mm -hmm. And how do you use this medium to change the world? And I found that so liberating because as an actor, as so many of us know, you're so often confined to whatever box someone wants to put you in on a given day or, or whatever the world's view of people in those boxes at that moment, or, you know, there's just so many limitations that are constantly being imposed on you, but the freedom to say, what kind of a world do I want to build? How do I want people to be able to liberate themselves within that framework and change things for themselves was a big part of how I shifted into directing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love all of that. And I love also what you started to say about story medicine. And not only is it about telling the story, but it's about stories can either heal or harm. So like knowing that there's a real responsibility in the stories that we tell and the stories that we choose to tell. And so I'm super curious about how you know, growing up in the Mohegan tribe and, and growing up in the Mohegan culture, how has that really shaped your view of, of the stories that you grew up with versus the stories that you see kind of in the societal, like cultural context of, of where we're at? Yeah, it's interesting because I remember, I remember when I was in high school, it was the first time I was trying to turn a Mohegan story into a play as part of a project local theater company. And I remember getting in this fight with my mom because I was trying to find the inherent like clear conflict and hero villain structure that like, you know, Western theater teaches us exists. And so I was like trying to figure out what the moral was and who was right or wrong. And she's like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> she's like, stop trying to impose this on the story. Because, because in that particular story, right, the structure is actually that, that when somebody does something wrong, the entire community suffers. It's not, it's not about, you know, just that person being punished because the world isn't actually that simple. The, the lines are a lot blurrier. But actually, one of my favorite differences between Mohegan stories and other stories is that, so my tribe is matriarchal. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that there are different stories that, I guess, show that. I would say more than Western stories in certain capacity. And, and one of my favorites, I remember I, I, when I told to, to a friend who was, you know, not from my tribe, at one point she was like, whoa, that's like really subversive. <laughs> she was like, really like, you know, like, whoa, like if I had raised a story like that, I don't know. But it's because, so Chanamid is our trickster. And there's a series of different stories in which he does something bad. And in the final story, it, the story is what happens when Chanamid takes a wife. And basically, you know, the very abbreviated version of why this, this is like really empowering is that he basically when she gets fed up with him she chooses to leave and the things that she takes with her are a mortar pestle and some eggs which are all symbols of feminine power in different ways and and basically as she's escaping she uses each one of these symbols of feminine power in different ways to stop him but then at the very end when he's finally almost catching up to her she draws a hair from her head turns it into a spear throws it at him and he dies and yeah. <laughs> and, and then it goes like she was a Mohegan. She went back to her people. And so, and so you're just like, yes, of course. Very good. But it's like, it was, you know, it's like, it, it's just, it sets up your mind differently for the power that you have in yourself mm. to, to get out of a bad situation or to change things or to, you know, like to be a woman who, when something goes wrong, the, the default is not you stay with that person, right? The default is you leave. And if they try and stop you, you make a hair spear and you kill them apparently. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's just a very different empowered look at, at, at a very basic concept, which is a bad relationship. <laughs> but it was 
very it was very interesting because I mean yeah traditionally Mohegan women you know you just leave your you move his stuff outside and he goes you know it's not they don't they don't have the men weren't traditionally supposed to have any sort of special magic power over us like they do in in so many western cultures and so and so while I wouldn't necessarily consider that story medicine it does shape the the actual framework and the ways you're thinking about things there are stories that are told as part of specific ceremonies that are very specifically story medicine but I think that that framework applies to all the stories that we tell and really thinking about like if we're going to put somebody in a dream space like what is that dream space that we're conjuring them into and is it really a dream or is it a nightmare you know and like thinking about what it's actually doing because I think about often how much of my entire understanding of the world was shaped by stories I heard very young mm-hmm. and some of those stories really helped me and some of them did not and and if I was going to you know retell those stories what would I change and so a lot of my work especially by work reimagining Western classics is really like, what is the story? What is it at this moment in time? And if we had to intervene in some way, what is that intervention that needs to be made to make it basically to carry it forward to where we are now to bring us a little closer to the world that we want to get to? Because I'm a deep believer that the stories that we pass down shape our collective possible futures. Mm. And so, for example, when I was working on Antigone this fall, I had to create a new adaptation because I just, I was like, we're not addressing the fact that one of the biggest problems with this story is the acceptance of the idea of like martyrdom is heroic instead of questioning, you know, why does she need to die at all? And what would happen if instead we listened to her and stood with her, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so really thinking about these structures that we take for granted in a lot of these stories as noble or as heroic and thinking about like, yes, but what could society do differently? And how could we actually move society forward with how we tell the story? Mm, Yeah, that's super fascinating. I guess I'm thinking about like the intersection between you growing up with indigenous stories and Shakespeare and then like finding that meeting point. I wonder if, you know, and you talking about reimagining the classics, do you find that by presenting that in Shakespeare and like asking those questions and really choosing which story you're going to tell through Shakespeare, does that provide like an accessibility point for the Western culture that are then receiving the stories that we've all I mean, not all of us, but most of us have kind of a general idea of Shakespeare and the classic Shakespearean story. So I wonder if that's like a more accessible or just a more interesting way to reimagine a story that has been told for hundreds of years versus the indigenous stories of America and specifically the indigenous stories of your tribe. I don't think, I think that Shakespeare is default used as a container for things it is not a container for. In America, I think it's become used very problematically, actually. I think that there's this default idea that Shakespeare is universal, which is just not true, right? Shakespeare is sexist and racist, unless you're actually making those shifts in the text and considering what parts of those are there or not there. You know, you can't pretend Shakespeare is neutral. And I remember being very frustrated, actually, when we were, when we were doing the Native Shakespeare Ensemble in New York for a few years, because because people would come to our shows and they would be like, well, we expected to learn more about Native American culture. And I'm like, well, like the things that you might've learned, you wouldn't have been able to pick up on because like we were doing a Shakespeare play, right? Like, it's like, it's not one, it's not our job to educate you. But two, like the nuances to what that is are much more complicated than people expect because most people expect stereotypical images of native people. Like, because most of what people have been educated in is red face and propaganda images, you know, indoctrinated through the American history education system in this country that have been going on for so long. Like most people don't actually have any idea. And most people don't even know the native people are still alive, to be honest. So it's like, it's a very complicated process. And 
And there are colonial structures in all of Shakespeare's stories. So you can't directly apply, it's very difficult to directly sort of like transpose. For example, like whenever I've directed Shakespeare, there's always a ton more women in those leadership roles because it would be weird for there not to be. And often colonialism is actually a factor in the structure of the way that I'm directing the play because we have to acknowledge that the colonial system is there and how did it get there? So so basically what I'm, what I'm saying with all that is like, I actually think that contemporary writers who are writing what are, you know, poetic, epic classics from native perspectives mm-hmm. are much more interesting to me at this juncture than trying to make Shakespeare that because a friend of mine, Amantio, I can't remember what she was, where it was quoted from, but she, she said this thing one day in rehearsals for my solo show, Where We Belong, about the tenets of good theater being to entertain the drunk, to reveal the way the world works, and then to show us how to live. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare very rarely shows us how to live. And, and that's what really, once I realized that, that's what really got me stuck. It's not to say that I don't love Shakespeare. It's not to say that I don't think he reveals the way the world works and reveals the way the world works and does that in really brilliant and poetic ways. But ultimately, you usually need to stage some sort of an intervention to actually do any sort of deep dive into showing us how to live. And there are some plays that like you could argue do it a little bit. Like I think it's a little easier to do it with As You Like It than some other ones because of that wood space. And, and the way that the Duke and everyone operate there. But, but for the most part, it's restoration of order to Shakespeare's time is what's actually happening structurally. And so all that is to say like, like, yes, those plays, but in what context and in what conversation, because they realistically, I've now come to terms with, can only go so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I wonder, you know, as you're going up, did you kind of always want to be an artist and want to tell stories for a living? Or like, what was that choice? And and do you feel like that was really accessible to you because of the way that you grew up in in this story-centered, story-centric culture? Yeah, I I always wanted to be an artist or storyteller of some form. I, I do feel very lucky that there were those days where, you know, if members of my tribe showed up in my school to sort of do some sort of storytelling exercise. I was the one that knew the story and it's very exciting to me. But also my mother is a writer and I came from like a family that was very supportive of the arts and creativity as well as us, you know, having these stories and, 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 and being um, familiar with storytelling as sort of a, as a practice culturally. There were just also a lot of storytellers of various forms in my, in my family. And I think that I think that the ways in which I use story is probably if I was going to do a deep dive probably also connected to like the different professions in some ways of everyone in my family, as much as my culture itself. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned your solo show, Where We Belong, which I'm super fascinated by it. I, I've written a solo show and I'm really interested kind of in like solo performance and how, I don't know, just taking total ownership of one story and you being the only person on stage and like it all, it all being about you and, and kind of claiming space in that way. And so I'd love to hear about the process of your solo show, how, where the idea came from and kind of the journey that you've been on and are still going on with it. Sure. Yeah. So my solo show was originally not supposed to be a show. It was never supposed to be a play. It was, what happened was I had moved back from England where I was working on my PhD in Shakespeare. And when I first moved back, I, I was struggling with the question of struggling with two things. One, it was the first time that I moved back home and my feet didn't feel like they rooted into the ground. Like normally, like when I come home to my traditional lands, it's like, this is the place. Like this has always been the place. It's like a very deep, and I, I felt like a little bit unrooted. And also I was trying to figure out if as a Mohegan person, missing England made me a traitor. 
Mm. So I started writing to try and process these feelings. And, and also, and also sort of part of the vessel for the way that I process that is my Mohegan name means blackbird or the dark one who flies apart. And also Mohegan means wolf people. And so the contrast between being a wolf person and a bird, and what does it mean to become a bird? And what is that, what is that, that space of being in the sky? And what does that mean? And so, and so I started to write to kind of process something that I was just emotionally didn't understand and like needed to figure out a thing of like, is there a place, is there a place as an indigenous person in a globalized world where I get to belong? Because I was coming back from literally having been like very international for a while at that point. And, and I was trying to figure out like, do, is this like permanent? Am I going to be trapped up in the sky forever? Or like, what is this? And, and it evolved over time. Like the very first sort of like reading of it was like this confessional, like, just going to do this. And this is more like a confession than it is like a show. And then it'll go away. And everyone kept being really interested in it. And so I was like, Oh, and like, people were like, like interested in like really deep ways where it was like helping them like figure out things in their own life and all of this other stuff. And, and it evolved more and more over time to be about the relationship between Shakespeare, colonialism and language and the ways in which the loss of the Mohegan language is connected to my need to find my voice in Shakespeare and the cost of some of these systems that operate within our society. And it also mirrors the journey of my ancestors who had to go to England in the 1700s on diplomatic missions in service of our people. So that ocean crossing journey and the way that it, it is, is an ancestral journey. It's not just, you know, people like assume as a native person, like that couldn't have been happening the whole time, but actually like I have multiple ancestors who had to go over there for various reasons very early on, you know, some of whom died over there because they were trying to do good things for our people. And so, and so it's a really complex and nuanced piece. It was interesting when we first did it in 2019 at Shakespeare's Globe, I just remember being like terrified that I was going to get in trouble because like I had never done anything so personal. And so, and also I felt like I was like you know, saying bad things about Shakespeare in the Globe, and that was probably not a good idea. But I wasn't really, I was like, but it was funny because it was interesting because it was like an immediate standing ovation because they were just so excited because it made them see that space in a different way. Mm. And so it's been a really interesting process for me because people keep responding to it so deeply. Mm. And up until then, to be honest, like my work has been very intellectual, I would say. Like prior to that, my work has not been very personal. A lot of my writing has been like adaptations of the classics or like my directing is very like, you know, it's like it's like you're shaping something, but, but where we belong is so personal. And of course my director, like every draft or every version we do keeps making me make it more personal. And so... <laughs> And so it's just been a really interesting exercise, not only in, in like figuring out like how my own narrative operates inside of myself, but also figuring out like, how do you connect these things in ways that ask the questions to audiences without confusing them with also like giving them enough doors into like your way of seeing the world that they leave understanding something that they didn't understand before, as well as, you know, a deeper look into their own experiences and lives and asking these, these big questions. But it's, it's, it's also just very intense to perform. It's, it's like, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's because there's a lot of like, I mean, because it's all true and there's just a lot of very emotional experiences in it. It's not the kind of solo show, right? Where I'm like, let me put on a bunch of hats and like, yeah. it's like very much like, let's go deeper and let's go deeper and let's go deeper until like, you know, like everything is like super abstracted. Mm. And, and that experience is really interesting because it's, it, people keep describing it as being like a very visceral thing to witness where they feel like, like you let, like, I let them inside my like mind for an hour essentially. Mm. 
So it's definitely made me appreciate the form also in new ways in terms of what it can do in terms of like how we share our stories. To be honest, I don't know if it would have ever occurred to me if I wasn't already at that point when I wrote it, like it's post me having become a TED fellow and having become like a public speaking engagement type person, which at a certain point I realized is just writing long monologues. Because I used to cry, (laughs) this is terrible, but like I used to, somebody brought it up the other day. They're like, when did you like start becoming really comfortable public speaking? And I was like, actually, it's a really good question because I used to cry. Like it used to be like someone would give me like an opportunity to be like, would you like to say something? And it'd be like, all these people. And if it wasn't like a character, you know, somebody who's not me, I would just start crying. And so like the idea now, right, that I do this play that is literally me as me for Gosh, the last draft was eight, up to 80 minutes, which I don't want it to be. So, which is just, it was too much. It's too much. It was at 60 minutes. I felt like I was going to die. Um, because also like I talk pretty fast, right? So it's like, it moves, it moves like a very, yeah, it moves at a clip. So yeah. So anyway, I don't cry anymore. Well, I do cry, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds so exciting. And that sounds like just in the way of you describing it sounds like that's what theater should be, you know, like this asking those deep questions and how that relates to you know your story and how how you grew up and how that relates to other people and like when you let people in so vulnerably like that's when they are able to release things that they might be holding on to or like revealing things to themselves so that sounds like so magical and even when you said that mohegan means wolf people and your name means bird it's kind of like the bird flies away so you know asking that question of like home and coming back to your roots and i'm i'm like i want to see it and you're doing it at woolly mammoth next year right yeah, and I, I yes, it's supposed to be a William in the spring. We'll see. We'll see if it's we'll see what I don't know, but it's supposed to be a it's supposed to be a William Mammoth in the spring. So I'll keep you posted on whether I mean they do have it set up so that it, if things aren't in person, there's a virtual version. But, but either way it's happening. Yeah, either way it's happening. Oh my gosh. Well, I can't wait. That sounds so exciting. I'm super curious about kind of like this idea of rituals and rituals that we do for ourselves as creatives, whether that's when you're writing a show or writing a speech, like, are there things that you do to get into the writing flow or to get into that mindset? And conversely, like with directing, are there rituals that you take your people through and like, how, how is ritual important in the theater space? Cause I think that's something that theater teaches us like the importance of ritual and even like, I don't know, when you're playing theater games or even just the act of going around the room. And I wonder if if you have similar rituals also that you grew up with in your culture and like ritual being embedded in the indigenous culture and then how that relates to theater. So kind mm-hmm. of a lot there, but I just love the idea of ritual and like being really intentional about gathering and creating space. And so I wonder what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I have my own. I mean, so I I do think that like, so I I actually, I don't always think of theater as ceremony. So I'm going to start by saying that because I don't, I don't always think that they're the same thing. I think that, I think that there can be aspects of theater that are sacred, but I don't necessarily think that theater itself is always sacred. And I, I say that because like, for example, like there are lots of, there are lots of aspects of indigenous song and dance that we do not put on stage because the stage is not a sacred place in the same way or masks or, or, or spiritual beings represented. Right. So, so, so while they're both ritualistic, I think there, I think there's different kind of ritual at play. And I, I do also really relate to, yeah, I, I personally really appreciate places to gather and gathering places, any culture. Like I really like being in those spaces where we gather together and we think about something as a community. For me, I think it's interesting because when you asked that question, I thought about how 
a lot of my preferred entryway into pieces is actually gathering is actually me not going away and thinking about it by myself but either like when it's adaptation a lot like when I have the ability to either like read the original together and talk about what's relevant what's not relevant anymore as a collective and then go away and start to begin like the initial gathering of the story and the people and that moment in time is often very useful to me that being said I'm trying to think of like how it's funny because I'm trying to think about like how I begin writing because it does feel like it. I, I wish I knew because that would be really useful because <laughs> it, it, it has to get to the point at which the, the characters are speaking. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not somebody who can just start writing if there's no nobody's like it's weird but it's like everything has to everyone has to be real enough that they start speaking in order for me to start writing it down. Like I got in a conversation with someone at one point where like there's, I guess there's different people write different ways. Like some people hear the people, some people see the things happening. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like, once the, it's like, there's chatter, like chatter starts. And then like, it's like, okay, sounds like I'm a little crazy. Sounds like I'm hearing voices, but it's like, it's like, and then I start basically like writing down that chatter as it's occurring. But in the case of where we belong, a lot of it was, and I, I offer this to a lot of people when I'm teaching workshops, both on solo performance and also sometimes on adapting the classics where we do start with a question and just free rights exploring that question and taking figuring out where that question goes. If it goes deeper, if it doesn't. Um, because realistically the first draft of where we belong was like just written stream of consciousness. It was just like, I hit a point where I had procrastinated too long. And then like, you know, it was like, everything was like bubbled up and it was just there because the, the realistically the actual way that I process and write is by just stewing about things for a very long time. And I also run every day. And so very often it's like right after I get back from a run that I, I'm able then to like start. But it's very frustrating to my partner because, because I was, ah, now that I live with someone else, I'm like, yeah, you interrupted my thought. Yeah, my thought is, like, it's like, it's very, it's a very easy way to operate if you're always by yourself, right? Which for so long, like while I was traveling back and forth, I was just always by myself. So like, there was never a moment where I wasn't working on something. It was always just the thoughts were like a, a fluid sea of connectivity and they were leading into something else. And if I heard a conversation, that conversation was also a part of the thing. You know, there was like never actually an interruption to the way that I was synthesizing things. So rather than ritual, it was just like my whole life was just like this like blob of like creative process. Now I'm in the process of like trying to create rituals because I realize that other people do not necessarily appreciate when you are like, you know, constantly fixing. (laughs) Totally. It's like that separation of life and art. And for most artists, it's hard to separate it because our whole, our entire life is like gathering material and and figuring that out along the way. So I totally relate to that. You're not alone in that. But I do always need a couple of days to shift projects. I was thinking about that this week because I was thinking, because I went from like two different writing projects. Now I have to jump over to a third one. And it's tricky because I always want to be able to be like, and now I will just start writing the next. (laughs) And it never works. Like my brain is always caught in the thing before. So I think I actually probably should have come up with better rituals or just utilize existing rituals for like letting go of something and then starting something fresh. Because I have trouble, especially in the pandemic, I feel like I've been doing, I've been working, I've been just writing a lot more. But the switching between writing actually is even harder than switching between directing. I remember somebody said to me once, they referred to directing as a whole brain project. And I I really agree with that. Like I can never direct something that I'm not super passionate about because it does consume my whole being in like a very specific way where like, if there's even one thing I don't agree with in the play, it's going to make me insane. Mm. But for writing, because it's also generative in a very specific way, it's like, in addition to that, I also need the time to like reestablish myself mentally fully inside the world before I can even start to process 
So rituals of time, I think are really, really important. And I, I have to think about as I go forward, now that you've mentioned this, like what are the ways in which I can actually craft that time mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, like what happens otherwise is you're always running out of it. You're always like, oh no, what do I do now? Totally. Yeah, it's so cool also to hear that you've so beautifully blended like director, writer, actor and other hyphenates that I'm sure you are. But like, especially in in our industry, I feel like, and maybe this has been shifting, but I feel like, especially with maybe directing or playwriting, it's kind of like you do one or the other and it's kind of hard to break into both. And so I, I'm super curious how you've made that all work for you and how, you know, nowadays it's like, are you seeking specific projects that you want to work on? Or do you get approached about projects that you want to work on? And like, how do you decide which one to follow? Is it just like whatever is exciting you in that, in that current moment? And like, how do you balance all these different pots? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, and people do usually want you to be one thing. So it's, it's a really good question for that reason. Also, I, I think the pandemic is a really unique time for me because as a director, I couldn't do as much other, like realistically pre-pandemic when you're directing, you're in person and you're directing all day. And so that in and of itself put a limit on the kinds of projects you could do at the same time. Like I've actually been acting more during the pandemic than I probably had for like, I want to say like almost 10 years before the pandemic, because like when something would come up, it would be at a point when I already had booked something as a director and was in person directing somewhere else. So it was just not even like, it wasn't even something I could consider doing, you know, because it was just time writing. I actively started making space for after where we belong up until where we belong it was always my relationship to writing was like I want to direct this story the thing doesn't exist in the right form Mm -hmm. which is why it was so closely tied to adapting the classics where it was like I was only writing when the thing didn't exist that I needed to exist in order to direct it was sort of like and then I would probably kind of cheat direct it you know so it's like the writing maybe isn't as good as it should be but I'm just going to cheat by directing it and so and so that was very much sort of how I was operating within that But I also was always writing as sort of, you know, somebody who was very active within decolonizing theater practice and promoting indigenous voices. I was always blogging. And then I was also writing public speaking engagements. And and so I was always, and also short stories. And like, I was always a writer, but it it wasn't necessarily that I was always a playwright. And Where We Belong, I think, was a really liberating experience because, and that's why I joked that it wasn't supposed to be a play, right? Because at the moment that it started, I was very much a director and definitely not being seen as a playwright or performer anymore. Mm-hmm. And where we belong sort of in and of itself, I think shifted that both because it is a very like poetic and specific piece with a very specific voice as a writer, but then also because it does have a lot of like range and humor and dynamism as a performer. And I also, for me, it was very liberating as a performer because I joked to me, I joked to me and my director. I was, I was like, nobody can tell me I have to be something else in order to perform this, you know? Like I was like, I can eat this cookie and no one's gonna say, you can't have that cookie to be yourself. Or like, I, I like, no one can say like, I'm like, you know, like don't look right for this role or nobody can say, you know, like nobody can say any of those things because it's just me being me. Or so, so, so there's sort of a liberation in the ability to actually be oneself, which I felt was something that I didn't have and couldn't sort of like wrap my head around prior to that. And it also, I think because of that made my other work as an actor better because I felt like I was suddenly able to fully express myself in that form. And so what happened though, I think after that was one, that script itself 
lent itself towards other writing opportunities because people really enjoyed that play. Mm. And also I actively sort of, basically there was a couple directing opportunities that I said, okay, I will also write a new adaptation. Like I, I started like tagging on the writing as if it was an actual thing instead of before I was just kind of doing it to solve problems. And so it was interesting because I feel like this year is definitely like the year of writing commissions for me, but I don't know that I would have ever had that if I hadn't had this weird experience where I was suddenly willing to go deep. And also my whole career in a variety of ways has been like me constantly being put in boxes and then escaping them. So mm -hmm. I've become rather deft at like, how do I get out of this box I have been put in at any given moment? And I've since the beginning of my career, always tried to do as many different things as possible because, because I wanted to be useful to the field. And I also felt that if I was like constantly doing different things, like not only does that keep me creative, creatively stimulated, right? Like if I'm shifting between these different roles, but also I understand what the other people are doing better. Like I, I become more sympathetic towards actors if I act every so often. I become more sympathetic towards playwrights. If I, you know, like this shifting is very useful for me, but I would argue that people still do primarily identify me as a director. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love hearing how it's worked for you because that inspires me a lot because I'm someone who's very multi-passionate and like wants to do all the things all the time. And I think that when you do kind of, like you were saying, if, if you act every once in a while, then you understand how to work with actors way better. And it's just like that intersection works together really beautifully. And so it's, I think that's a world that I, I want to continue like moving towards. And I hope that our industry will continue moving towards that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of great, examples of it in native theater and that makes it a little bit easier like we have people like Ty Defoe who like does everything you know that in Tara Moses kind of starting to also do everything where there's enough people who because of our traditional storytelling models not being the same are already doing this sort of multi-hyphenate work and I think that that also makes it easier to accept someone else doing it whereas like if there weren't other examples then it's sort of like well why why would you do that Totally. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm curious. I, th I think I told you this at the beginning when we first started talking, but I'm super interested in how creativity and spirituality intersect. And I wonder what, what is that for you? Do you feel that they intersect? Do you feel that there might be parallels between a creative practice and a spiritual practice? And, and what does all that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I mean, theater is always spiritual practice to me. It's just, I mean, I personally... I guess my personal relationship to theater is very much about conjuring forth the world that we want to see. And so it's always spiritual in that sort of visioning way. Like, I also think about it as like, it's something where like, no matter what show I'm working on, like it's, there's something off there kind of in the fog, right? And then over time, the fog is sort of pulled away by the collaborative process until we actually have something. I'm not somebody and I'll, I never hope to be someone who like sees a concrete product at the beginning. Like that's not interesting to me. I'm interested on in the journey. Mm. And I think that collective journey and that collective process of discovery is really, really what compels me towards theater. I mean, I do genuinely believe that story is medicine. And for that reason, I think that it is always spiritual. I think what's tricky is, is there are sometimes spaces where people don't see it as spiritual and then they try and appropriate other people's spirituality into their practice. And that's where it becomes really problematic. But for me, theater itself, I mean, and also what is a spiritual practice too, right? That's also tricky for me because everything is like, ideas lean on each other so much. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like, for example, so I think Where We Belong is actually an interesting example of this because I think that the performance I did in England was very much like for the ancestors. Mm -hmm. uh, because Muhammad Wayonamon, who went over there in 1735, 
to, to seek justice for our people because when he got smallpox and died before he was able to, able to meet with King George II, he was buried at what is now Southern Cathedral and that memorial was like right around the corner from the globe, right? There's this ancestor who's been trapped there for hundreds of years that this story is also for. And this story is also ceremony and healing for that. And so, and so I think it's complicated. It's like a complicated thing to put into words. But I think, I think in thinking about how certain storytelling practices are operating as ceremony and as healing, both for those who came before us and those who are to come, that's definitely a deep consideration in my work. And then also, you know, really considering the treatment of sacred and spiritual objects in the space, because sometimes in native theater, it does end up being the case that, that something sacred is being used as a prop. And, and so those conversations around what we consider living and what we consider object are, are also very potent within those kinds of spaces. So I think it's an interesting conversation, I mean, and, and question that you're asking about theater and spirituality, because I think also a lot of it is who's spirituality and, you know, and how, and what are you seeing as spirituality and what are you not seeing as spirituality? Because I mean, like, you know, like, I feel like the traditional kind of old-fashioned answers, like Greek theater was for the gods and blah, 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 blah. And like so much of those, those like, you know, Greek style plays, like, are this sort of the gods versus the law or the, you know, it's woven into everything. And I think that for me, so much of it is about reclamation mm. and, and different acts of reclamation. And when those acts of reclamation feel very powerful, like language repatriation, like when there's something in, like that's brought into a piece that feels like something is reclaimed or something is connected to the land or something is imagining something forward. That's when it feels to me like theater is really working. And those to me would also be the moments where theater probably feels most, you know, spiritual within that context. Mm. Yeah, you answered that so beautifully. And you gave me a lot of kind of like nuggets that I hadn't really previously considered, even connecting back to how theater was created and in in the Greek times. And yeah, that I, I think all of that, again, is just like a lot of questions to ask and be curious about. And even what you said about it really being about the process is is so much about what spirituality is about, like, facing the unknown and going on that journey and discovery along the way. Yeah. And traditional storytelling is, is ceremony, right? So there's also that there's the acknowledgement that some of these stories would be told over a long time as part of a long ceremonial process because the community needed this specific story at this moment in time. And so I think about that a lot, that, that idea of connected to story medicine, as I mentioned before, this idea of the community needs this story at this moment in time, like how are we telling this story to help heal them in that regard? Mm, yeah, thinking about which stories we need at each moment and, and what society, what story, again, needs to be told. One of the last questions I'll ask you is, I love sharing creative resources with people. So are there things that you've read recently or people or plays or anything that's been inspiring you lately? Oh, gosh, so many things. I'm trying to think. I mean, I feel like, I feel like I've been very lucky that I've been working with other artists a lot recently. And so a lot of them really inspire me. I mean, I think Vera Starbard, who's a Clinkett playwright, who I've gotten to work with recently on her Clinkett Christmas Carol and Native Pride and Prejudice is really inspiring me, not only because she's like a wonderful human being and an immensely creative writer, but also because of the ways that she's like bringing those stories that were sort of like, you know, taught in school into Alaska in these really specific ways so that they feel about community and place in a moment. And, and that's really exciting to me. And also the ways in which she, you know, makes sure that 
and Perseverance Theater as a whole make sure that these practices are decolonized and that there's a lot of Native artists working together in community on these projects is very, very inspiring to me. Tara Moses is doing a lot of really great work as a playwright and director right now. That's really inspiring to me because, because she's, you know, she's a younger artist who is already making so much change. Ty Defoe is always doing something interesting. And now in the digital space, I feel like he's finding even more interesting ways to, to innovate and collaborate. Even his solo performance piece in his collaboration with Kate Freer has found some really interesting digital forms. And then also my, my mother, I recently had the benefit of co-writing a, a radio play series with my mother about moments in Mohegan history. And I just am so impressed and empowered by, I mean, she, she's our tribal historian and, and also a writer. And so, you know, she has this, such a breadth of knowledge on, on all of these moments in time, but the conversations where we actually sat and talked about why these ancestors might have done these things mm. was just such an exciting way to think about history. And it really made me think about the ways that theater can be used to pass down oral tradition, the same way that, you know, storytelling has always been done, but that actually this act of saying like, why might our ancestors have done this in this moment in community is such an exciting question to, to be thinking about like how we learn from our, our past leaders. And, and also the way that she's adapted forms is very exciting. I mean, like, you know, like to think about someone who is like at any given point in their life, like constantly shifting between mediums and that she's like, okay, now this year I'm a playwright. And then suddenly she's an O'Neill finalist is like, I'm like, what, how did you do that? Like, you know, so it's just like, it's just been, it's been really interesting and inspiring to see not only what the young people coming up are doing, but then also sometimes how what the young people are coming up doing is actually inspiring elders to, to, you know, access mediums they wouldn't otherwise have thought about as their own. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's such a cool, like, thinking about just the relationships between people and how we influence each other. And I, I've never thought about that. That's, I'm really glad you brought that up. And then lastly, where can people find you if they want to hear more about your work? So my website is www.madelinesayit.com. It's just very straightforward. It's just my name. And that usually will link you to anything else that I'm working on at any given time. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like, I don't know, I've learned so much about you and you've been so much fun to talk to. So thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Soul Podcast, and thank you so much for listening. If you liked this podcast, please feel free to send it to a friend and tell them what inspired you, or feel free to connect with me over on Instagram at the underscore modern mermaid with your thoughts. And if you would be so kind to rate and review the podcast, I would love to gift you my guided writing meditation that will help you connect deeper to yourself, your creativity, and your spirituality. Just take a screenshot of the review and send it my way at the underscore modern mermaid and I will send over the meditation. Stay inspired, stay creative, and keep shining your creative soul.